Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. So it's going to be a bit of a different morning this morning. Uh, we're not doing traditional, like, or as traditional as our singing ever is. Uh, but it's all going to be around this guy, who you may have heard of, Bruce Springsteen. So I'm going to do this one song at the beginning that we're going to talk about. Then we'll do community time. And, uh, and then we'll get into sort of chatting about everything. Uh, and yeah, so slightly different, not that different. So. I didn't know I was going to Still racing down at the trestle, but that blood is never burning her veins. Now I hear she's got a house up in Fairview and a style she's trying to maintain. Everybody's got a secret, Sonny Something that they just can't face Some folks spend their whole lives trying to keep it They carry it with them every step that they take
was thinking about all these topics that I'm thinking about, I was, I was uh, brought back to junior high math class uh, as I began thinking about this. So when I was in junior high, I had this math, he was my math and science teacher. Um, I do remember his name, but maybe I don't want to say it out loud, even though I'm not going to insult him or anything, but you know, you never know. So my math and science teacher uh, would regularly, and I, and I can remember this because he brought it up more than once, but he would, he explained why he loved math as opposed to other things. And he said that he loved math because there is always one right answer and that you can't be wishy-washy with math like you can with English. Uh, which, I, and I can remember sitting in the room and it felt like all the air was just sucked out of it. <laughs> like when he said that. Because it sounded so incredibly boring and pointless to work so hard at something that was already decided, right? Something that, that uh, it felt like to me I couldn't sort of bring any part of myself to. Uh, and the same was kind of true of me, for me of science as I was taught it in school. Uh, it was just sort of a matter of learning and then uh, memorizing and repeating sort of facts, right, that, that you had learned and how things worked. Um, but it was in my sort of English classes, when, uh, which is where I felt like, you know, I sort of came alive, right? This is where I felt, which is obviously why I do what I do now. But, uh, you know, because I was encouraged to interpret, right? And I was encouraged to create. I could write stories and things like that. Write a story, examine someone else's work in an essay, make connections between sort of history and literature, between two different works. Um, I struggled with the grammar sections of things because it too felt like math, right? If you, you, know, if you remember back to your grammar lessons, right? Uh, you know, I'd always had this sort of instinctual connection with grammar, sort of just sort of understood concepts. So when I had to write a test in which, you know, I was required to identify the independent or the dependent clauses or explain the relationship between the predicate and the subject, uh, think about pronoun agreement, when to use who or whom, who is for subject, whom is for object, by the way, uh, <laughs> uh, or, or whether to use a semicolon or a comma when creating a list, this list that I'm reciting requires semicolons. Uh, you know, I would, I would freeze up and I would do poorly. Uh, and I'm not even going to get into Oxford comma because I did that last summer and talked about it forever. Uh, or how annoyed my teachers would, how annoyed I would get when my teachers would, you know, circle on my essays uh, because I had used a preposition to end a sentence with. Yeah. No? no. <laughs> anyway, I talked. Traumatizing us. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I am. That was, that was the pay attention, uh, see if it's working. Anyway, I talk English good now, so we can move on. Uh, and since, since my uh, Calvinist school, which was so Calvinist it was named after the guy, uh, was not great at finding creating wa creative ways of measuring learning, and I think that was true of most schools. Uh, uh, recently it's begun to change, which is good. Um, I didn't actually do all that well on English, in English uh, on paper. Uh, and became quite frustrated uh, by it for a long time. In fact, to the point where I, when I finished my PhD a couple years ago, I tried to find my eighth grade English teacher to email him and say, you won't believe it, but I'm, I'm an English professor. You know? <laughs> uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't find him. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so it was frustrating, right? I love to read and I love to write, I love to interpret and create, but my grades were based on grammar and, and uh, and these sort of grammar tests that felt like they came from the sort of same level of hell where some demon dreamed up algebra or long division, uh, you know. So it just it was a it was a struggle. And this again, so I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of uh, slagging on on uh, the hard sciences here. I don't mean to. 
if, uh, you know, we all have different strengths and interests, I'm just talking from my own personal place. If math and science are your jam, that's great. I'm happy for you. Uh, and, and a lot of good has come from people who are very good at math and science. So, uh, but for me, it just, it just almost killed me. So, uh, <laughs> and my mother. And I had to go to, uh, the amount of money they spent on tutors is, is staggering. So, but here I am. Uh, <laughs> um, but, so I would, but I will also add that I think my eighth grade math teacher, uh, or I know, you know, was actually wrong in his assessment about the absoluteness of either of those disciplines because, like everything else in life, the deeper you go, the more complex it gets, right? So math and science aren't quite the always an answer thing, right? If we consider something like quantum mechanics, astrophysics, right? Once you get out, once you get really, really small or really, really big, things, all our concepts fall apart, right? Algebraic topology, which if you don't know what it is, don't bother, it's okay. <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, it's intense. Uh, but again, a space where there isn't definite answers, right? Where people have to bring creativity to, to their work. So, I mean, and even things uh, that seem so concrete, right, break apart as we, as we explore them more. We, think, we can think of something like gravity, right? On Earth, you know, if you can remember back, you were taught the gravitational pull on Earth is a consistent 9.807 meters per second squared, right? This is how we experience gravity uh, on Earth. But, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of basic Newtonian gravi gravitational math. But actually, gravity fluctuates depending on where you are in the world, right? And this is because, uh, you know, it's dependent on, on other factors like mass and distance between the center of two objects, right? It's not a huge fluctuation. Most of the time, you won't even notice it. Um, but theoretically, you experience less gravity if you're on the top of a mountain, say, than if you are in the bottom of a canyon, right, or, or a deep cave. Gravity would be more intense the lower down you go. Again, not really perceptible, but, but again, not a constant. This is all, uh, you know, affected by other factors as well, which I'm not going to get into. Uh, and of course, you know, if we leave the Earth, right, if we were to go to the moon, all of those numbers change, right? Gravity is completely different. And if we go really far out, we've got to start dealing with, you know, Einstein's gravitational theory. But we're not going to because it'll be lunchtime and uh, <laughs> you'll all be mad at me. So we're going to leave all that behind. But the, the point is things change, right? All, all that says is that things fall apart when we leave the sort of tidy confines of what we're used to, right? Our, our, our comfort zones, to use a phrase that I heard a lot when being coerced into evangelism as a teenager, uh, you know, you got to you sort of leave these spaces. And this is a theme that, for whatever reason, uh, you know, after, I've been teaching for a few years now, writing papers, doing research, and I find that I keep coming back to this theme, not only here, but even in my sort of professional life, uh, of this idea of liminal spaces, right? So. Uh, sort of the spaces between two things that seem like absolute. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say liminal spaces? Anyone? Okay, so if you go to that door, just a simple example, if you stood in that doorway, you would be both in this room and in that room, right? You, and you would be in neither fully, but also in both, right? And so the doorway is a liminal space, right? It's, it's a space between two spaces. Um, that's the simplest way to, to talk about it. Um, and, and we have these all over sort of metaphorically in our life, right? Um, I teach this course uh, on, on the interactions between Catholicism and popular culture, and, and particularly film and literature. Uh, and, and in those courses, we spend a lot of time thinking about this because of the fact that you have this monolith, or seemingly monolithic, giant, 
uh, organization called the Catholic Church and with all of its rules and stuff, and you have the world, right? And, and so in those courses, I tend to refer to these as the intermingled mess, right? This is where we exist, is in the mess. So on the one side, you have the church, and I'm, I'm speaking any church, really, or, or religious organization, right? It has its ideals, its principles, its rules, and its promises of answers, right? But it's always a little bit dull. It's not, not quite as fun. On the other side, you have the world, which seems meaningless, vague, troubling, but also is a lot more fun, right? This is where you have concerts and uh, bars and you know, <laughs> things like that. So, uh, and, and so you have, and, and most of us exist in between, right? And so in this course, these courses that I teach, most of the, the narratives that we look at, whether they're films or, or literature, the characters exist somewhere between these two worlds, right? In the, in the mess. Um, just sort of like anyone that has a religious inclination or an ideological bent politically, socially, musically, cinematically, gastronomically, right? <laughs> there's, there's a point where you're like, this is the greatest thing ever. And then somebody sort of says, no, I hate that. Or, or uh, you know, or have you tried this or whatever? And it sort of blows your paradigm. And, and you're into this mess, right? You can't sort of stay there. And, and of course, it's nice to stay in our trenches, right, and uh, away from sort of cognitive dissonance. Uh, but it's pretty impossible to do unless we go sort of full recluse mode, right, and just sort of hide out from the world and turn everything off, uh, which there can be time for, but, but doesn't really work as a full life practice uh, unless you're very wealthy and can do so. The other problem with staying entrenched is that you know, if you know, we've lived long enough that you realize we can only really learn or grow or transform or become empathetic uh, once we enter the mess, right? Once we leave our trenches and go into the mess. Uh, and, and so to bring this back to Springsteen, which we'll do more, when we find ourselves in what he calls the darkness on the edge of town, right? This, this sort of space. Um, now, before we go too far on this, I, I want you all to be aware that I am aware of the somewhat problematic dichotomy of, of light and dark as metaphorical markers of qualitative or qualities uh, like good and bad, right and wrong, righteous and sinful. Right? I'm not sort of uh, you know uh, saying that everything bad is dark and everything good is white and that kind of thing. Because, of course, some authors, filmmakers, TV producers, many, many politicians have applied this dichotomy to racialized people groups, meaning like you know, when we watch some things sometimes, characters with darker skin become embodiments of evil that must be overcome by virtuous characters with lighter skin. Uh, it, you know, once you start noticing it, you start seeing it more and more. Um, this happens in, in less obviously pernicious ways too. If you've ever read Toni Morrison's writing on colorism, it's a very interesting take on, on uh, the sort of, the way different gradations of skin color are represented uh, sometimes in, in media. Um, yeah, so, so there is that. There's also surprising places where the tables get turned. I, I, maybe I'm asking a ridiculous question, but if anyone's ever read Moby Dick, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, there's this amazing chapter. Obviously, he's chasing a whale that's a white whale. It's a blue whale. And he has this chapter called On the Whiteness of the Whale. And I've never heard anyone describe the menacingness of blank space so well as Melville does in this in this. Uh, this one chapter, uh, it's it's pretty great. I'm not going to recommend you read Moby Dick because it's a it's a slog, but uh, it's got it's got its moments uh, every once in a while. So, all I'd say, I don't think that's what Springsteen is doing here. I don't think he's equating you know sort of darkness with with badness, but but it's it's uh, 
it's it's part of his sort of movement as a songwriter this time towards simple declarative sentences uh, and in, and images that evo evoke uh, you know, interesting spaces and familiar spaces, right? We've all been to towns, we're in a city right now, uh, or, you know, or cities, and as you sort of leave, you come to the edge of the town or the city, right? And, and uh, this is where the street lights stop, things start to spread out and darken, right, as you get into the country. Uh, in modern times, you know, our self-service gets a little spottier <laughs> as we get out there, it makes us a little nervous. Uh, I found, uh, I, I have some anxiety issues around the country and, and last week I was at Folk Fest coming back at late at night and, and my anxiety was like through the roof as I was like driving by myself through the country. And I know lots of people love the country. For me, I'm like, if, I, if my tire diet breaks here, I'm dead. That's my immediate thought. <laughs> probably, probably not true. But, uh, you know, there is this, this feeling, right? You move from what you know to what you don't know, right? And, and, and the, the sort of space out there. Uh, we leave behind civilization, right, another dubious term, uh, and, and enter the wilderness. But this isn't really about either space, right? It's about the space in between, the liminal space where the land is not fully domesticated nor is it fully wild, right? It's the, the, the in-betweenness connotes a certain danger, perhaps physical, um, but I think in you know, Bruce's metaphor, if I can be so bold as to call him Bruce, uh, <laughs> this is more psychological, right? It's, it's a metaphorical space between knowledge and ignorance, confidence and doubt, even in this song, I think childhood and, and adulthood, right? This, this sort of growing. So in his autobiography, uh, which I'm gonna read a bit more from later, but came out a couple years ago, Born to Run, uh, he writes that uh, the, the characters in this song and the whole album that it's from, which is also called Darkness on the Age of Town, uh, he says, stand unsure of their fate, but dug in and committed. And he says, by the end of darkness, I had found my adult voice. This, this is him writing. And, and so, you know, these characters are not sure, they're not confident, but they're committed to going forward, right? And, and to do what they need to do, even if they have no idea what that is. And I feel like that sounds like a pretty good definition of, of adulthood, right? There's no one left to sort of hide behind. You know, you've got to sort of put yourself out there. Uh, it's a good definition of parenting, right, and, and all of that, but I'll save that for another day. Uh, you know, it, so, so basically to use a, a verb that I uh, don't really like but is all over the Internet, the characters here have to learn to adult, right, using adult as a verb. Uh, and and this, is, this is where we're going. Okay. So, uh, that's my whole preamble. What I want to do is just go through, kind of go through the song and think about, about the way these images work. This is going to be a real sort of uh, English class close reading. Um, so, I can do this one of two ways. Uh, I sang the whole thing at the beginning. Uh, I was thinking I could sing through the verses again just so they're fresh as we, as we dig through them, but if that doesn't feel necessary to people, I can also not. No? Just put the words up. Okay. <laughs> so, here we go. <laughs> In the interest of time. Uh, so, first verse. You can see them there. Uh, and I'll sort of just, just, just move through them uh, a little bit uh, you know, as we go through it. So, again, coming back to this idea of uh, liminal spaces. We have uh, the speaker here, right, who is not Bruce Springsteen himself, uh, but a character he's created, right, uh, 
sort of stuck between two opposing locations. So on the one hand, you have the trestles, right, which is where we start. Uh, these are sort of train bridges, this kind of thing, uh, where obviously there's some sort of racing going on. Uh, and then you have Fairview, and then you have uh, this, uh, an area called Fairview, and then uh, a play Abrams Bridge is, is sort of the third uh, location. So uh, a lot of people have, have mentioned that these are all places in a city, in the city of Louisville, Kentucky. So here's a map of, of Louisville, a very far out map, uh, and, and these sort of locations that he's, he's name dropping. So you see way over there uh, on the far, your right, you have Pope Lick Trestle, which I don't know what, who named that, but <laughs> it's a location. As you can see on the very edge of, of uh, Louisville, uh, that is sort of these well-known train trestles or whatever. So people who have sort of, Bruce has never sort of come out and say these are the exact things, uh, but, but people have sort of said, well, this, this sounds like this and it sounds like that. So you have the trestles over there. If you go back to the left, sort of inside the city, you have Fairview, which is a street uh, and sort of a suburban development, um, which I think now is in, is in pretty bad decay, but at the time of the song's writing, it would have been sort of a suburban area. And then at, at the top, you have Abram, Abraham Lincoln Bridge, Abrams Bridge, which uh, is a bridge, uh, the, so, so Louisville is built along the Ohio River. You can see that sort of going through the middle. Uh, and this bridge crosses the Ohio River. Everything north of the Ohio River is Indiana. So uh, up there you have the town of Jeffersonville, Indiana. Uh, and then everything south is, is Louisville. So what you have, of course, is, is uh, meaning both the trestles and the Abrams Bridge are literally on the edge of town, right? Uh, these, are, these are two spots that are not in the middle. Uh, and Fairview, of course, is, is closer to the, to the city center, right? Where it says Louisville, that's sort of the downtown. This is a suburb. Um, yeah, so meaning that these two locations that he name drops, right, the trestles and the, the bridge, are on the edge of town. She, the she that he's speaking to or referring to, not necessarily speaking to, is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and these, of course, are important kind of uh, you know binaries to. This is an important binary, right? Outside, inside, uh, you know, edge, middle, all that kind of stuff. But there are other ones to that it plays into that are important to consider as well. So you have the past and the present at play here, right? So I'll go back to the lyrics. Um, you have. Uh, you know, this sort of idea of they're still racing at the trestles, right? Blood never burned in her veins. Now, right, which connotes, I was talking about the past, now we're speaking in the present. Uh, you know, she's, she's done this other thing. But she's moved, she's moved to the suburbs. So there's obviously a history here that's sort of underlying what he's saying. He's not filling in all the gaps. Um, but uh, they are estranged, right, these, these two characters. Perhaps she used to come down to the trestles, even though it wasn't her thing, right? Blood never, uh, the blood never burned in her veins. This is, it reminds me of, you know, when I was younger and used to play in bands, there would always be sort of, you know, the guys in the band and then one of their girlfriends or two of their girlfriends or whatever would come along and they would sit there and look absolutely bored, <laughs> but they wanted to be at rehearsal or sound check or whatever, uh, you know, but it, so it was this, this kind of thing. And I can imagine in my mind, she's sort of like, oh, we're going to the races again. Oh, great. This will be a lot of fun for me, you know, <laughs> and, and so, but, but so, so this is their part of their past, right? And so eventually she's outgrown it, right? She's wanted more out of life and so she's left him for this sort of more grown-up life, right? Life in the suburbs. Uh, uh, and, and, but he sort of seems to refuse to grow up, which is why 
uh, he seems to be living under a bridge, apparently, on the edge of town, right? He says, if she wants to see me, I'm easily found. Tell her the spot out beneath Abram's bridge, right? This is where, he, apparently, he's there enough that, that he can be easily found there. Uh, so what that all means, if that's just his hangout, if that's where he lives, we don't know. Um, but, but clearly, he's still sort of in that place, and, and she's moved on. Another uh, sort of binary here is the kind of musically, the way it plays out, right? It's soft and loud. The, you know, if, if, if I had played a recording of it, it would have been even more, the dynamic would have been even more. But certainly the first half of each of these verses is very soft, right? Sort of com explaining something, uh, uh, you know, simple, uh, softer kind of delivery. And then it shifts to this much louder delivery, right? It goes up an octave. The whole band comes in if, if we were listening to a recording. Uh, and, and I think what it does is, you know, as music does, the music can sometimes tell us thematic things about what the song is about, right? So the, it, it feels as if the first half is sort of the speaker calm, but then getting slowly more angry as he's thinking about everything that's happening, right? And then his anger peaks and, and he sort of blows up, uh, you know, with this second half, right? If she wants to see me, you know, tell her I'm easily found, right? We can almost imagine there's another person he's, that the speaker is speaking to, right? Uh, and then as that part goes on, it gets louder and louder, and then again resigns with this refrain, right? The darkness on the edge of town. Uh, and it's as if the, the reality, uh, as he sings in the second half, sort of lilts down uh, and, and uh, you know, comes to, a, comes to a, an end, right? And it's important, this is not like a call and response. This isn't like the first half is one person talking, the second half is another person. This is all the same person, right? And so, and so it, this, the speaker embodies both of these extremes, right? They are soft and loud. They're depressed and irate. They're the, they are the past and the present, right? It's all embodied in one person, sort of mercur mercurial personality, right? That, that he can swing from both, but, but he's both. Not at the same time, but he can go from one extreme to the other. The other binary uh, is, is, I think that's embedded in this, is this idea of the idealist versus the sellout, right? Now, these can be often very arbitrary markers, right? The idea of being a sellout um, often has more to do with marketing and sort of your place within capitalism and all the kind of stuff than anything else. It used to be very important for bands not to like let their music be used in commercials, right? So they did that, then they sold out. They took the money. That's not pure anymore. Now your song that was supposed to be about freedom and, and teenage lust and all of these sorts of things is uh, selling bank insurance or something, right? Like it, it shifts the whole meaning uh, of this thing. And so now you've become a sellout. Uh, uh, but, you know, these are, these are things I can remember as a teenager, you know, I had friends that, I remember meeting one guy, we weren't good friends, but he was really into punk music. Uh, and he said, any band that makes a video is a sellout. I don't listen to them anymore. <laughs> well, how are they supposed to get their music out there? <laughs> you know? Anyway, videos used to be very important too. But, but so, so this is kind of the thing, right? So the speaker here, I think, in his identity, is, he sort of uh, you know, sees himself as a racer, right? A rebel. Springsteen is tapping into these sort of archetypes of the 50s and 60s, right? The racing and the, and the drag racing, all that kind of stuff, right? And this is how he sees himself. And, and this is how, what he sees as an important thing to hold on to with, with all his might. He views the she, right, that he's speaking to as having sold out her ideals, right? Uh, you know, he probably thinks that they shared 
she shared his ideals at one point. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't, right? Everything we're hearing is from his perspective. That's important to remember. But now she has a style she's trying to maintain, which, again, um, you know, this idea of the effort to maintain a style implies that it's a pretense, right? That she is pretending, that she is pretentious, uh, which is the root of the word, you know, pretend is the root of the word pretentious, right? This is not who she really is, but she's working hard to maintain that facade, right? And so this is a major frustration to the speaker who views his sort of personal interests, ideals as being authentic as opposed to a style. Right, he has, he's real, she's fake, this kind of thing, right, this dichotomy. Uh, and of course, as I said, it's important to keep in mind this is all from the speaker's point of view. And I think Springsteen is doing this deliberately, right? We don't, we don't know anything about her. Everything we know about her comes through his filter, which is, which is a, this technique that authors use, right? The unreliable narrator, right? Where you can, you can sort of uh, think you're hearing a true story, but it's all biased and, and uh, uh, you know, connected to the, his sort of messed up worldview. Uh, and, and so in all of this, he views her choice to leave him as unjust, right? So perspective is important, especially when you're thinking about, about stories. So also keeping in no mind this notion of authenticity, uh, it's important to remember that everything we do is performative, right? He is performing his uh, uh, rebel you know, <laughs> identity, right? Uh, and, and so and he sees her as performing her whatever, grown up, normal person identity, uh, you know, and, and, and so that's, that's, I think, at play here as well. Okay, so first verse, done. Um, uh, second verse. If this was my class, I would now stop and say, anyone have any thoughts or questions on, on that? Which I can do, if anyone wants that, but, but don't feel obligated. I, you're not getting graded. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, second verse. Uh, uh, again, again, we have a, only his sort of perspective, right? This is this is first person, um, but he's sort of moving away from himself and making making statements <clears throat> that that go beyond himself. Although I think still from within his own his own experience. Now, for. The past 20 years or so, as I've listened to the song, I always, uh, basically until this week when I was prepping, I was this week old when I learned, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that I always thought the first line was, everybody's got a secret sin. And, and so looking at the lyrics, I'm like, wait, Sonny? He's saying Sonny? Because Springsteen tends to, to slur his words a little bit. Uh, and and it, it, I, I think that I actually like this better. I, I think this is a better choice. Because it essentially means the same thing, right? A secret sin or a secret, you know, doesn't, doesn't really matter. But this, this sort of adding in this pronoun Sonny suggests that there are more characters at play, right? Who is he speaking to? Now, in some ways you could think, well, maybe he's just a really old man. He calls everybody Sonny, right? Like, uh, like we see in cartoons or something. But I think, I think it may be a little more direct. Uh, and, and so it raises the possibility that he's addressing his child, right? His son. Um, and that perhaps this child is somehow attempting to reunite his parents. Maybe this is a child that he had with the she that, that he's speaking to. Maybe the child's come to him and said, listen, dad, you should go see mom or whatever, right? Um, who knows? Uh, it sounds like she's moved on, uh, but, but it, it raises an interesting sort of under the water uh, uh, notion that, that kind of makes the song a little more interesting. 
it also, if we, if we take that idea, I think it also makes the, the speaker sound even worse because it implies that he's some sort of deadbeat dad now, right? Um, and it, although we've already established that he spends enough time under a bridge that that's where he can easily be found, uh, you know, this, this even makes it seem a little bit worse. So beyond that, uh, the verse again emphasizes the, this theme of duplicity, right? Uh, that people are not what they appear to be, right? Everybody's got a secret, something they just can't face. Uh, uh, you know, they carry it with them every step that they take, right? This, this sort of notion. Now, at this point, we could accuse Springsteen of hyperbole. I mean, everybody, do you know that, right? Um, it wouldn't be the first time he's, he's used hyperbole. Um, but I think the songwriting reality is that everybody is this sort of useful shorthand for inclusion of the listener. Because even if we are not currently in this moment carrying around a secret, there has been a point in all of our lives where we have had a secret, right? And, and, and so we, we understand that experience, right, of sort of having to uh, deal with something that we're not ready to face yet, uh, you know, and, and, and then that, in that way we feel, again, connected to the songwriter and that, and that we're being addressed personally, all these kinds of things, things that songwriters do to, to uh, sort of loop in listeners uh, and, and emotionally. Uh, and so... Yeah, so you have this, this sort of uh, connection with everybody. And, and then you, he introduces this idea of duplicity or duality, right? That's sort of at the heart of all human beings. This, this, uh, you know, this idea that, let's say for a second, that every single person in the world has a shameful secret that they're carrying around, right? Somehow, we, society moves forward, right? We're not all sort of hobbled or, or uh, you know, catatonic because we just can't move with this, right? Uh, most of us tend to be able to move through our lives, even if there is shame or guilt or trauma in our past somewhere, right? We can continue to function, uh, meaning that we are both haunted and functional. But what's interesting into the second stanza, right? Again, the moment where he goes from calm to exploding is that, uh, you know, there's, there, this duality can be manageable, right? This, this sort of both parts. But in, uh, but in Springsteen's imaginary, it is not infinitely sustainable, right? And there comes a breaking point. And, and so again, we see that shift here, the breaking point in the tenor of the song, goes from soft to loud, where it comes, right? Till someday they just cut it loose, cut it loose, or let it drag them down. So there comes a point in this sort of uh, narrative that something has to be done, right? So another binary, we either deal with it or we move forward and we cut it loose. Uh, or it destroys us, right? Or sorry, we move forward, we cut it, we deal with it, move forward, cut it loose, or it drags us down. We're dragged down into the place that he says where no one asks any questions or stares too long in your face, right? Uh, we're dragged into the darkness on the edge of town. This, this to me, at least, like, you know, again, these are not specific places, and this is my own sort of interpretation, but this feels like the place that we might use a word like false community for, or unhealthy relationships, right? Places where there are other people, but uh, no one asks any questions, right? No one stares too long in your face. Uh, this is a place where, because everyone has let their secrets drag them down, their shame, their trauma, their whatever, uh, they have no interest in or patience for the pain of others, right? And I think that is, in a lot of ways, the antithesis of community, which, a healthy community, which is we care about the, 
the, the, the joy and the pain of others, right? We're not only isolating to ourselves moving through these spaces. And so I was trying to think of a literary, uh, a literary example of, of uh, a darkness on the edge of town. And I, two things came to mind. First one was Dante's description of purgatory in the Divine Comedy. But then I thought, that'll probably feel like being in purgatory if I read through all that. <laughs> so the other one I thought of was Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and, uh, and this... Uh, particularly great book, Oh, the Places You Will Go, which was a staple of uh, graduation commencement speeches for a while, um, but has this really great, I, the reason I like this book is because it's, it's like, you know, you'll move mountains, you'll do all the stuff, but also it's going to be tough sometimes, right? And, and so it's got this really great description of what Seuss calls the waiting place, right? So I'm just going to read this, uh, and again, even though they're both poems, this will be much more entertaining, I feel like, than Dante. So we'll, we'll stick with this. So here we go. You will come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're darked. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin. Do, uh, do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? Liminal spaces? Again. <laughs> How much can you lose? How much can you win? And if you go in, should you turn left or right? Or right in three quarters? Or maybe not quite. Or go around back and sneak in from behind. Simple it's not, I'm afraid you will find, for a mind-maker-upper to make up his mind. You can get so confused that you'll start into race down long wiggled, uh, wiggled roads at a breaknecking pace and grind on for miles across weirdish wild space, headed, I fear, for the most useless place, the waiting place. For people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow everyone is just waiting waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for uh, or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting around for friday night or waiting perhaps for their uncle jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls or a pair of pants or a wig with curls or another chance Everyone is just waiting. And here I think, um, you know, this is an interesting image. Sorry, people on the podcast, you have to get your own book um, out there, you can see. Uh, of, I think, this kind of community, right? Here's a bunch of people in the same space, but none of them really interacting, right? Other than this lady and this bird who are looking at each other, everybody's kind of just on their own, waiting in lines, doing sort of certain things, right? And this is that idea of this, of this community. A false, false community, I think, right? A, a broken community. And, yeah, so, uh, and, and I think what's interesting, too, connecting Seuss to Springsteen is that it plays into a major theme in Springsteen's work uh, that, you know, has often been identified as sort of working class frustration, right? And again, I'm going to clarify class things in a bit, but, but this idea uh, that one is not doing what they want to do because of obligations, right? They have to work a job, that they don't want to work just to survive or to provide for their family, right, because of choices that they made. And so rather than being able to sort of enjoy the life they have now, uh, they're always waiting because they think it's going to be different or better at some point, right? Once the mortgage is paid, once the kids have grown up, once the promotion comes in, etc. So I use the term working class uh, because that's sort of Springsteen's milieu in, in a lot of his songs. Uh, but it's not, of course, limited to any one class or group, right? Uh, you know, I can remember, it's funny that I kind of came back to this book and remembered this, but I used to read this to Atticus when he was young. And at the time, I was working a job that I did not like. I was not doing what I wanted to do. And I don't think I realized sort of how 
uh, how much that was kind of depressing me and, and, and wreaking havoc on my mental health and stuff like that. But I can remember more than once reading this book to him and getting to this point and getting kind of choked up. And, and not even understanding that like, oh, I'm in the waiting place. And that's why it's painful to, to witness this, right? Um, luckily, I had great community around me, you know, good marriage, wonderful child, all of that kind of stuff. But it does, right? It, it, it sinks in and it, and it hits you in certain places. So, um, yeah, these, these, interesting, uh, these interesting connections to your life that only come to light, I feel like, 10 years later, right? Whereas now, when I read this to Rosa, I don't, I don't get choked up. I'm in a, a bit better place. So, the waiting place is interesting because if, if, say, we wanted to get very pessimistic and we're at the end of the, sort of the second uh, you know, act of this story, and that's usually a narrative, this is the low point, right, where before things get better in the third act, although I'm not sure things get better. But anyway, if we want to get pessimistic, the waiting place, as Seuss describes it, the darkness on the edge of town, this is kind of the world, right? This is the, the larger world. Uh, and I think both Dr. Seuss and Springsteen are, are uh, describing experiences of being in society without necessarily being in community, right? Uh, you know, think about riding the bus, for instance, or being in a shopping mall or grocery store, right? You're sort of amid people, but not really with people, right? Uh, although you can be, especially if you're like Jane, who talks to strangers on the bus <laughs> and comes home with wonderful stories. So, uh, anyway. But we can usually handle the indifference of society because we know we have a community somewhere to return to, right, that will take us in. Um, yet we still have to move through the mess, right, through the wilderness, through the darkness on the edge of town. If, if the town represents community, then the darkness on the edge of town is the furthest point from that community before you're just fully out into the wilderness. It's, it's the coldness of the night during the winter solstice, right, when, when our part of the earth is at its furthest point from the sun. Uh, to put this in Bible story terms, right, this is the end of the first act of Job, right, where, where everything's gone wrong uh, before his useless friends show up and, and uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, talk about false community. Uh, anyway, uh, I, could you imagine being, having a bunch of stuff go bad in your life and then your friends show up and go, well, what did you do? You clearly did something wrong. This is God punishing you. Anyway, unhealthy, toxic, toxic relationship. So, or we can think of Jesus on the cross, right? Uh, you know, in this moment, why have you forsaken me, right? This is this idea, you know, whatever, whatever way you think about God, uh, either as sort of anthropomorphized being with agency or as maybe a personification of, of representational concepts like love or community, either way, to have God's face turn from you is a chilling thought, right? Uh, not unlike being trapped in the darkness on the edge of town. And so that's where, that's where we end up, right, in this, in this uh, the end of this second, second verse. Third verse. Uh, so now, again, he's sort of turning outward and, and uh, thinking about, um, you know, beyond, beyond just the speaker, right? But the speaker, I think, taking their own personality and, and assessing the world around them, right? So, again, we're presented with another binary here. Uh, People who are born into privilege, right, and those who have to work but have this sort of burning ambition to succeed, right, and sort of separates. Now, of course, there are many other types of people uh, in the world, right? Uh, not everybody is either privileged or highly ambitious, right? There's, there's many uh, spaces in between. But, uh, you know, what, what this dichotomy, this dichotomy tells us a lot about the worldview of this, this character, right, the speaker, who again is not Springsteen, but is sort of informed by Springsteen's tendency 
towards what he calls emotional autobiography. Uh, this is how he says that he writes. These aren't literally stories about him, but they're sort of emotionally drawn from within himself. Um, the speaker here clearly does not see himself as part of the first group. He's not a person of privilege, right, uh, uh, in, his, in his view. Uh, but likely sees himself as someone that has the ambition to work hard enough to get, uh, you know, to get what he wants out of life, right? And to be fair, Springsteen as a person did manage to pull this off. Comes from very working class roots. Uh, at this point, when he wrote the song, he hadn't sort of made it yet. But within a few years, he would be world famous and rich beyond the dreams of his working class youth. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's speaking out of his own ambition as well. Um, but it all speaks to this idea of uh, the American dream, right? This, this idea that anyone willing to work hard enough will succeed. But this is, of course, a myth, right? Uh, you know, and one's success in life often depends as much on class, race, geography, educational opportunities, natural talents, willingness to cheat, lies, steal, and systematic uh, oppression as it does with one's work ethic, right? There are many people who work very hard their entire lives and, and can barely afford to retire, right? And so you can't sort of say, well, you didn't work hard enough at, you know, wherever. Um, you know, it's, it's just there's other factors that play into it. Um, but yet this speaker is, is defiant, right? Either because he doesn't realize the reality, he thinks that he can work his way to the top, or because he does realize the reality and wants to keep fighting anyway, wants to sort of fight against the, 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 stack, or the deck being stacked against him. Um, yeah, and so I think certainly Springsteen at the time, uh, you know, from, from the other songs on this album, from, from his other albums, from his writings about them, um, we know that he sort of sees the reality, right? That, this is, that it goes beyond just working hard, that there are other factors involved in life. Uh, and, and he can see that there needs to be some dismantling. So one of the ways he, he sort of personifies this is, again, I'm going to go into his, his autobiography, which is excellent. Even if you're not a big Springsteen fan, if you're like a big music fan, it's a great sort of uh, uh, background on it. So he's talking here about his sort of state of mind in the mid-70s uh, and thinking about this new genre of music that's sort of coming in from Europe and, and New York called punk, punk music, right? Maybe some of you are old enough to be punks. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but he's, but this, this, this sort of angry music, right, that's, that's coming in. And so he writes this, which I think, again, speaks to this idea of, of dismantling, which was, which was big in the 70s, right? So the punk revolution had hit, and there was some hard music coming out of England. The Sex Pistols, The Clash, and Elvis Costello all were pushing the envelope on what pop could be in 1977. It was a time of great endings and great beginnings. Elvis had died, and his ghost hovered over our sessions, our recording sessions. Across the sea, they were raging. there were raging young idealistic musicians looking to reinvent or destroy uh, what, what they'd heard, searching for another way. Somebody, somewhere, had to start a fire. The gods, quote-unquote, had become too omnipotent and had lost their way. The connection between the fan and the man on stage had grown too abstract. Unspoken promises had been made and broken. It was time for a new order, or maybe no order. Pop needed new provocations and new responses. In 1978, I felt a distinct kinship to those groups, to the class consciousness, the anger. They hardened my resolve. I would take my own route, but the punks were frightening... Uh, but the punks were frightening, inspirational, and challenging to American musicians. 
Their energy and influence can be found buried in the subtext of darkness on the edge of town. I think just a little bit more darkness, the, the whole record uh, was my samurai record, all stripped down for fighting. My protagonists in these songs had to divest themselves of all that was unnecessary to survive. Uh, on Born to Run, his previous album, a personal battle was uh, engaged, but the collective war continued. On Darkness, the political implications of the lives I was writing about began to come to the fore, and I searched for music that could contain them. So it's a pretty interesting, I mean, he's writing this 30, gotta do math here, 30 some years, almost 40 years later, uh, after making the album, right? And he's thinking about, about this. Um, and, and so, you know, he's using punk as a, as a new musical medium in the 70s as a marker for the larger changes that were happening all over the world and in America in particular as people sort of, you know, woke up to the, to the world around them, right? The lies of the 1950s, the idealism of the 1960s, right? That love and peace and LSD was going to solve everything, uh, you know, and, and, the, and again, the overall mythology of the American dream, right? Which was being, uh, you know, sort of as, as people watched... Uh, <laughs> um, Sorry, so we grab it. You know, Nixon and all of Watergate and Vietnam and all of these sorts of things were crumbling. These systems, the power of America was crumbling. Uh, and so, as he points out in this quote, right, Springsteen is imbuing his this character, you know, in particular that we're thinking about, but all his characters with the anger, the rage, uh, uh, the rage really of of the time, right, as personified by punk's desire to tear everything down. But of course, what happens is. You know, so we think about that and we think, yeah, tear everything down, pull it apart, the world's corrupt, you know, let's do it. But then the, the reality comes, right? Well, okay, the systems are broken, but what can you do about it, right? What can we do about it, all that sort of thing. And I'm not going to give you an answer. But the, the characters, uh, you know, the answer for this character seems to be to keep fighting with the old methods and hope that they will work this time, right? And so he says, I'll be on that hill, you know, because he can't stop. Uh, he'll be bringing everything he's got, right? This, this need to achieve whatever it is that he's after is, is compulsive, right? And, and all-consuming. It's not that he wants to be there, right? He's not choosing it, but he, he feels like he has to be there. And, and I think it's like a lot of all of our connections with prevailing systems, right? Uh, you know, think about what Tim was talking about last week, right? This idea of sacred rest, almost, almost, uh, you know, radical rest, right? Uh, to to break free of the systems and, and just and just rest. Yeah, it sounds great. When he was reading, I'm like, yeah, that's what the world needs. And then you close the book and you think, well, how am I going to pay my mortgage if I just sleep all day, right? <laughs> how am I going to do these things, right? We're we're in these systems, uh, and um, you know, so so that's an interesting place to be, right? You want change, but but how do you do it, right? Same thing. I want to help the environment. I also need to get to you know where I need to go, right? So I need to drive a car. How do we how do we deal with this? Well, buy an electric car. Well, electric cars have these problems, right? It's it's a whole, it's it's uh, it's all over the place. But the speaker here again to come back to him uh, seems to be willing to do whatever it takes, right? He says I'm uh, I'll be on that hill to pay the cost for wanting the things that can only be found in the darkness on the edge of town, right? And, and so here, there's a bit of fatalism here, right? That, that uh, you know, he's going to return to that place. He wants those things. And this, of course, suggests, I think, at the end of the song, there's, there's a little turn here. Uh, it's still, I think, a largely pessimistic song, but, but a little turn to this idea of the age-old notion of knowledge and suffering, right? To know is to lose your innocence, all that kind of stuff, right? 
what were Adam and Eve up to in the garden to use you know, ancient Christian mythology, right? They were told they'll get the knowledge of God, right? Eat this fruit and you'll be like God, right? So it's, it's a craving for, for knowing, right? And they got it. When they ate the fruit, they got it. They lost their little nudist paradise, but you know they were <laughs> out in the world now. <laughs> they, they knew you know, what God wanted. Outside of Christian stories, right? Pandora's box, right? This, this story of opening the box and, and letting loose everything, right? Is the same kind of thing. If you're going to go see Oppenheimer next week, right? This is, <laughs> this is the story of science, right? Can we do this thing? Yeah, we can do it. What's it going to cost us, right? Uh, and, and, and so there's, there's that playing out everywhere. And I, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I have a feeling this is going to be a big theme for, uh, for Christopher Nolan <laughs> in that movie uh, will be this, this kind of, uh, yeah, the cost of knowing. Um, yeah, so, so there is this cost for wanting things to know things that are hidden, uh, uh, you know, but that cannot overcome the compulsion, right? Even if we know, okay, Yes, you'll find out about this thing, um, but it's going to, you know, it's going to do this to you. There's still a compulsion to know, right? We think about AI right now, right? It's like some people can kind of see where this might be heading and think maybe we should, you know, hit the brakes. <laughs> you know, and other people are like, no, we have to push it to its, to its, you know, whatever. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. We're going to run out of time. <laughs> uh, so now all of this can seem very depressing can, or, or at least quite pessimistic and, and, uh, and maybe even fatalistic, but I... I don't think it has to be. I think there's, there's something in there, right? Uh, yes, the gaining of knowledge can lead to the loss of innocence, but losing one's innocence is not really the tragedy that it's always made out to be, right? When I was a kid, my Sunday school teachers used to tell me that the fall in the garden was the great tragedy of humanity, right? Uh, but, I, but I don't see it that way anymore. I view that story as the moment that Adam and Eve became human. This is the shift. You know, they, uh, you know, and since there are sort of mythological metaphorical proxies for all of humanity, the story is a reflection of all of our moments of coming to knowledge, right? Of losing ignorance, of losing innocence. Adam and Eve in that moment stopped being automatons, right? Or, or children in the garden. Uh, and they became fully formed humans who made decisions for themselves based on all of the available information, right? So this isn't, you know, we often refer to it as the fall, you know, thanks uh, Augustine, was it Augustine? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, um, who, really, who really drove that home, you know, but I, I think, you know, in some ways this is, this is that moment where we become humans, right? And there's pain in that. They had to get dressed and go outside their perfect little world, which can be tough, especially, you know, if you've ever been to Mexico for a week at a resort, right? And you got to leave and put your parka back on and come out to the, you know, the walkway at the airport here. It's harsh, right? Um, but, you know, you need to do it because the systems and all that. Anyway, another story. <laughs> um, you know, it, it can be tough, right? And, and sometimes it's nice to think of the good old days when ignorance was bliss, but the reality is that we need these sort of wake up moments, right? Even if we're embarrassed about how asleep we were before, or even how hard it is to give up the metaphorical bed covers that were keeping us warm, right? We need to sort of to sort of step out of the step out of sleep once in a while, and and so I think the final line suggests that it takes going back to the dark places to find the experiences that will wake us up, right? It can be painful and distressing, but the wilderness is kind of where we encounter reality, right? Even though it seems like a place to avoid uh, for most of the song, the narrative resolves in the darkness on the edge of town, right? Something shifts in our worldview when we stop thinking of the wilderness or the darkness or the desert as places of foreboding, evil, and disillusionment, but places of enlightenment, 
places where our preferences, our preconceived notions, our biases, our, our ideologies, our bigotries stop working because all the foundations that hold them up are gone, right? It's like Tim's peer or deck analogy that he used a few months ago, right? You can't really fix what's on top until you dismantle what's below, right? Um, going into the wilderness removes these foundations, right? For instance, money, degrees, titles uh, are sort of foundational, right, in our society, and thus are very useful. Uh, but, uh, you know, once the sort of constructs of all of that are gone, they mostly become meaningless, right, once society is gone. Having a million dollars in the bank uh, isn't really going to help you in the desert because even if you could find an ATM to get some cash out, there's no one there to exchange your money for water, which is what you really need, right? Uh, you know, all the degrees and titles you have are not going to matter to the coyote that is about to eat you, right? You can't be like, listen, I have a PhD. You can't, you can't eat me, right? doesn't matter. Those things are gone. So I'm not suggesting that we all travel to the desert, but I think we also shouldn't run from the metaphorical wildernesses in our lives, right? Or at least the edges of them. Uh, you know, in the same way that the cracks are where the light gets in, you know, as Leonard Cohen tells us, uh, the dark is where the distractions are blacked out, right? Leaving us clarity to find ourselves. These are the places where we aren't bound by our social standings and our classes and, and uh, you know, everything uh, that tells us we're important people or, or not important people, right? We're sort of, there's an there's a equality there. Uh, and, it's, and it's a place that we learn to see, right? So it's noon, I know. I'm just going to read one more quote <laughs> and, uh, and, <clears throat> and we'll wrap it up. Now, this is from Marcel Proust. Proust? Proust? I never know. Um, French writer, early 20th century, wrote one book. This is volume one of that book. Uh, very long. Um, but he has a very interesting notion of the idea of wisdom and the wilderness. And so, so I'm going to end with this, uh, and then I'll, I'll, uh, we can move on into our wildernesses or not. Whatever. Wildernesses or wilderness side. Who knows? Okay, here we go. Proust. Uh, we, are we are not provided with wisdom. We must discover it for ourselves after a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can take for us, an effort which no one can spare us. For our wisdom is the point of view from which we come at last to regard the world. The lives that you admire, the attitudes that seem noble to you, are not the result of training at home by a father or masters at school. They have sprung from the beginnings of a very different order by reaction from the influence of everything evil or commonplace that prevailed around them. They represent a struggle and a victory. I can see that the picture of what uh, we once were in early youth may not be recognizable and cannot certainly be pleasing to contemplate later in life, but we must not deny the truth of it, for it is evidence that we have really lived. Oh, I probably wanted to save that page, but anyway. <laughs> so, so this is this is you know this is Proust, not a summary. Obviously, he's still very far from the end of his book, but an interesting way to look at the world, right? That that the struggles that we have, the the problems, all of these sorts of things are not necessarily you know the, the, our time spent in the wilderness are not wasted. They're not useless, right? These are where we form who we are. This is what makes us who we are. The pain, the struggle, all of these kinds of things. The time spent in the darkness on the edge of town is how we find our way find our way forward I'm going to do another Springsteen song 
Uh, this one is called Atlantic City. Uh, I'm not going to get into it as much as I did this song, um, but I think, again, he's using sort of the commonplace and the mundane and the specific to reflect on sort of the universal and the eternal, um, but especially I think the chorus is, is useful uh, in, this, in this way of thinking of it. So, sing this and then we'll wrap it up. Well, they blew up the chicken man Tired of coming out on the losing end. So, honey, last night I met this guy.